Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, February 12th, 2010. I'm Flying around the world, skipping breakfast, or working late at the office aren't really considered unusual occurrences. The fact that we can skip seven time zones and not feel the effects of jet lag for very long is wholly thanks to our circadian rhythm, a biological clock that essentially runs our entire body and all systems within. On Tuesday, the New York Academy of Sciences brought together scientists who study the circadian rhythm to talk about what disruptions to our circadian clock can mean for long-term health, more specifically, diabetes and obesity. Today, you'll learn a little about your circadian rhythm and the research of Carla Green, a professor of neuroscience at the University of Texas, Southwestern Medical Center. She's discovered a gene called nocturnin that could have big implications for obesity treatments. Hey you, what are you doing on Tuesday? Yeah, this Tuesday, February 16th, 2010. Finding out what to eat and why, that's what you're doing. Join Science in the City as we host NYU's Marion Nessel. She'll talk about diet, nutrition, and food politics. This is the second event in the Science in the City Girls' Night Out series, and tickets are selling fast. Grab yours before it's too late at www.nyas.org slash girlsnightout. New York City, or for that matter, any city. Running to catch the bus, running to catch the train, late for work, late for the dentist, late for yoga, late for school, 9 to 5, 10 to 6. Chances are, no matter where you live or what you do, you've experienced the feeling of being on someone else's clock. But have you ever stopped to listen to your own clock? Okay, so your heartbeat isn't exactly your clock, but it's part of your clock system, or rather, the circadian rhythm of your body. The word circadian comes from the Latin word circa, meaning around, and the word diem, which means approximately one day. Wonder why you sometimes wake up just before your alarm clock goes off? Or why you always get hungry around the same time? Or how about why it's actually pretty easy to get over jet lag? It's all thanks to your circadian clocks. My name is Carla Green. I'm a professor of neuroscience at University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. And I work on circadian clocks and how they control various aspects of physiology, um, both healthy physiology and what happens when the, when the system breaks down and we get disease as resulting from disruptions of these clocks. Circadian clocks are really intriguing internal timekeeping mechanisms. They've been known based on phenomena, such as just rhythmic activities, rhythmic behaviors for many, many years, hundreds of years even in some cases, but very little has been known about what they really are. However, over the last few years, the last few decades certainly, it's become evident that these clocks are genetically determined, and they are intrinsic to humans, to organisms of all types, even some types of bacteria have these clocks. And we know that these clocks are truly endogenous timekeeping mechanisms that can keep track of time and can organize physiology and behavior on a 24-hour cycle. 
It's estimated that 8 to 10% of the genes in humans are circadian controlled, meaning they turn on and off based on the time of day or month. Humans aren't the only ones with internal tickers. Plants, animals, and even single-cell bacteria experience similar patterns, all based around a 24-hour cycle, or one full rotation of the Earth around the sun. And it's not just one clock we're all on. We've got all sorts of rhythms in our bodies, says Carla. Originally in mammals, including humans, I mean, it was thought that there was a main clock in the brain that organized sleep-wake cycles, activity rhythms, and so on. It's now become clear in the last 10 years or so that we actually have clocks throughout our bodies in many, many different types of cells, including skin cells, liver, lung, kidney, intestine, cardiovascular system, all these different tissues have these little clocks residing within the cells. But it's thought that the clock in the brain um, is the one that coordinates these clocks and synchronizes them and keeps them all running together. So the primary circadian clock is thought to reside in the hypothalamus in our brains. It's kind of like the atomic clock of our bodies, or the symphony conductor as Carla puts it. The circadian cycle, from an evolutionary standpoint, is meant to help us store and use energy in the most efficient ways possible. Back in the days of hunting and gathering, we woke in the morning without alarm clocks and went to bed when it was dark and when we felt tired, something that we now call the sleep-wake cycle. We ate when we felt hungry and when our bodies needed more calories for energy. We rested when our muscles were tired and pretty much lived by the rhythm of our bodies and the length of the day. Today, however, everything is a little bit different. Well, humans, you know, are a big problem because <laughs> we control our light-dark cycles, use alarm clocks to wake up, even when our body's saying no. You know, we eat at crazy times. We travel, you know, across time zones. So we do a lot of things that clocks really weren't evolutionarily um, pressured to adapt to. And so we do disrupt our clocks a lot. There's been great studies by a number of people that show that sleeping too short can cause obesity or can cause increased glucose levels. Whether that's clock-related or just sleep-related is unclear. But, you know, there's certainly a lot of kind of social jet lag, you know, staying up all night going to the bar or, or, you know, traveling crazy schedules or whatever. Shift work is a huge problem. Despite the disruptions we cause our circadian rhythms, our bodies are remarkably skilled at adapting when we break the cycle. Ever flow into a different time zone? It doesn't take long to recover. And there are triggers that can help set your body back to its normal rhythm, like eating. But some of us experience mutations in our circadian genes. And since the circadian cycle controls some major functions like sleep and metabolism, these mutations have been linked to cases of obesity and diabetes, among other disorders. Carla started studying the circadian cycle by accident about 15 years ago. When I started studying clocks, I actually was studying the retina of the frog, Xenopus lavis. And the reason we were studying the retina of the frog at that time was that this was 15 years ago. Nothing about the clock was known. None of the clock genes were known. None of the clock components were known. And the frog retina was one of the only... Um, there was really one. There was really two systems back then that allowed you to study clocks in culture. And frog retina was one of those. You could take a retina from a frog and you could put it in a culture dish, and it maintained very beautiful rhythms for many days. And you could study that in a culture dish. And the mammalian system, there was no such system at that time. You could only do whole animal studies. And so I began to study the retina of the frog as a way to get some insight into the clock. Eventually, we found a gene identified in the retina 
that now that we've moved into the mouse and looked at that same gene, we've now identified this gene as being a mediator of the clock's ability to control metabolism. And so this gene that we identified, nocturnin, actually is involved in lipid metabolism and obesity. So what is nocturnin? We identified it originally based just on the fact that it was rhythmic. The gene turned on at night, named it nocturnin because that's all we knew about it at the time. It was nocturnal. But now that we've studied it more and we've studied it in mammals, we know it's an enzyme that is involved in controlling messenger RNA degradation. And that's a little bit technical, but what that means is it's a way to manipulate gene expression in a what we call a post-transcriptional mechanism. So it's a way to turn gene expression on and off in kind of a unique way. And that enzyme, nocturnin, seems to control gene expression of some clock components that are involved in metabolism and involved in lipid utilization. Lipids are essentially fats, and Carla's lab has discovered that when the nocturnin gene is turned on at night, our lipid metabolism system also becomes active, meaning we're processing fats. The discovery of this pathway led Carla to wonder, what would happen if they bred mice who didn't have the nocturnin gene? So, Carla's lab bred two sets of mice, one normal and one without the nocturnin gene. Each of these groups of mice were then split into two more categories. One group was fed a normal diet, and the other group was fed a high-fat diet. While the normal mice who were fed a high-fat diet ballooned in size as expected, the knockout mice without the nocturnin gene who were eating the same fatty diet actually remained at exactly the same weight. And ironically, while interrupting some circadian cycles can cause problems, inhibiting the nocturnin gene might actually have therapeutic potential. Nocturnin seems to be involved in lipid utilization. It may be that designing inhibitors to the enzyme might actually be an anti-obesity drug or that's, you know, far-fetched right now. We're, we're in the very early stages. But learning about those pathways and figuring out how you can disrupt them on purpose can sometimes be advantageous depending on what you're trying to do. It's too early to tell whether inhibiting nocturnin might ever be a potential treatment for obesity in humans, especially because so few of the nocturnin pathways and effects are known. So we think that nocturnin really is driven by the clock, which knows what's going on time-wise. But we also know that nocturnin is driven by some other signals independent of the clock. So there are certain things that can trigger nocturnin to get what we call acutely induced. And that's true with a lot of the things that are involved in clocks. It's like they're going along with their rhythmic cycle, but they also can get kind of turned on abruptly, you know, when the situation arises, they need to be turned on. When it comes to her research, because so little is known about our circadian clocks, Carla says the golden ticket is finding out more about how nocturnin functions in all of the systems in our body. I think the thing that's the most tricky for my specific research is that this gene product is expressed in a lot of different tissues and seems to be playing a slightly different role in the different tissues. And I guess if we had a better handle on what the specific role was in each specific tissue, it would be much easier to understand the overall thing that was being, you know, carried out by this gene product. To learn more about research into circadian cycles, check back in a few weeks for the NIAS e-briefing on Tuesday's event. For Science in the City, I'm Alana Rangi. Thanks for listening. Science in the City is a non-profit program of the New York Academy of Sciences. This means that we need your continued support to keep bringing you this weekly podcast series, as well as the rest of the Science in the City program, like our Girls' Night Out events and our website. 
for more information on Academy membership and to support Science in the City today. Log on to scienceandthecity.org slash donate. As always, we would love your feedback on any of the programs we run here at Science in the City. Send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org or you can leave us a voicemail at 212-298-8654. See you next week.